0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome
1: to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Katherine Jensen, Assistant Professor of Sociology and International Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We'll be talking about her book, The Color of Asylum, The Racial Politics of Safe Haven in Brazil, published by the University of Chicago Press recently. So without further ado, welcome, Katie, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. I'm really excited, so let's get started right away. Um, yeah, so can you tell us how you came to your work as a sociologist and how you came to writing a book about the racial politics of asylum in Brazil? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think,
3: as with anything, there are many origin stories that we can trace. I'll say that my my pathway to being a soci- becoming a sociologist was really just advice that I got. I um, had not loved sociology as an undergrad. I did Latin American studies as my bachelor's degree and really had wanted to pursue that for my Ph.D., and got the advice that that's not really how hiring worked if I did want to go off and be a professor. And so I needed to sort of pick a discipline. And sociology seems like, well, I guess I can study humans for the rest of, you know, for the, and social interaction and society for forever. That, you know, the early 20s logic brain. Um, so that, that was how I became a sociologist. But before I went to graduate school uh, at UT Austin, uh, University of Texas at Austin, where I did my PhD. sociology. I was living actually in Argentina and I lived there for two years and I was living and I was working and doing research. And that I think that's one of the origins of the book, even though it's set in Brazil and, you know, life took its own course. But when I was living in Argentina, I really had to come to question a lot of my U.S. centric assumptions about how immigration governance worked in the 21st century. I, before living there had, no idea and couldn't imagine that there were countries that did not detain immigrants, that did not deport them, that understood immigration as a human right and had policies that were in line with that. And so I was seeing and hearing about all these folks from places like Senegal at the time when I was living in Argentina, who were applying for asylum, but didn't really think that they were going to get it, but it gave them the right to live and work legally in the country. Things that just would be unimaginable in the U.S. context where once people are in the country, so many people don't apply for asylum, even if they do qualify, just for the fear of deportation, right? So that was a big part of it that I was like, wow, this is this is working very differently. And as someone who had done a lot of work around sort of immigrant rights and political organizing on that front, I was really struck by how different that looked and what that would mean. And But at the same time, I was trying to get legal residency in Argentina and I was navigating, you know, all these different bureaucratic offices and collecting these documents and having them translated and notarized and it took forever. And so thinking about, you know, how policies, what policies are for immigrants or migrants is not what they are formally, it's how they're experienced as they're navigated um, in process. And so those were two of the big... um, I think the the big origins of what started my interest in immigration in, in Latin America, and then I later turned to to look at Brazil as a very different racial context from Argentina, um, but which had the best refugee policies in in the region and also arguably in the world. And so what how would this play out? How do great policies play out in one of the most racially unequal countries in the world, right? How do those things, um, intersect in practice
2: yeah these are really important questions that are in the heart of the book and I love how you know in this origin story that you provided there's this um Sort of comparative thinking that's also at the heart of the book. Um, so in the book, you lead us through how Syrian and Congolese asylum seekers differentially navigate asylum in a so-called safe haven, uh, as you just mentioned. <laughs> Um, and racialization is the prism through which these differentiations are refracted, which have been long in the making, and I love how you historicize that in the book. So how do you locate these two communities within long duree histories of racialization upon arrival in Brazil? Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you
3: for that question. I mean, the, so just to zoom out and give a broader sense, um, so the book, The Color of Asylum, is really focuses on juxtaposing Syrian and Congolese refugees and their experiences from how they arrive in the country through applying for asylum, seeking assistance, getting refugee status, and then their life afterwards. But I argue in really the the first chapter of the book, which is called Arrival, that you can't make sense of what that looks like without having a historical lens. Um, And a big part of that. Most work on race and immigration in Latin America has been historical and is really focused on this crucial period in Latin American history in which political elites sought to whiten and and thus, quote unquote, civilize the nation through soliciting, incentivizing selectively, mainly European immigration. Right. This was a big. So in the ways that you saw lots of European immigration to the United States, you were seeing lots of Europeans also go to places like Argentina and Brazil during that same period. And so when, which is called the, the period of whitening policies into sort of the early 20th century. And race works differently in Latin America than it does in places like the United States, specifically and particularly now. And so while countries like Brazil, in general, preferred European immigrants. Um, Of course, there's always caveats, but there were huge incentives for European immigrants, but there was also open-door policies for anyone who wasn't from Africa or Asia. And so this meant that, along with Europeans, a uh, a great number of what were at the time understood to be Syrian and Lebanese immigrants came to Brazil. And so in that sense, they were understood as white enough to help with this racial project of making you know, a country that had forcibly ensla- imported and enslaved m- more Africans than any other country in the world and 12 times uh, what you saw in the United States, right? so a majority Black country in that sense. There really sort of any, <laughs> a lot of different types of immigrants could do in shifting the racial demographics in this moment in which eugenics is really crucial for how political elites are thinking about what the nation is and that, that legacy of that time period is constitutive of and informs how i argue that people today or in you know in the 21st century in brazil are thinking about syrian refugees or responding to them in policy and so arabness is understood now in, in brazil to be a venerated port a, a venerated um uh, portion or aspect of the nation um, as a crucial contribution to the ethno-racial mixture of Brazil. Um, for instance, Michel Temer, who was a recent, very you know conservative president president in Brazil, is the proud son of Lebanese immigrants. Something that I think is unimaginable in places like the United States. All this to say that Arabness is made sense of very differently because of those historical legacies and re- and understandings of whitening through immigration in which Syrian Lebanese were a part. And that was actually the way that the Brazilian government, Konari, the National Committee for Refugees, explained its decision to extend visas to Syrian refugees so that they could come to Brazil to seek asylum. So Brazil, different from you know, most other places in the world, instituted an open door policy where any Syrian could come. And the way the state explained this was based on the the idea that there are ethnic and historical ties between Syria and Brazil that is really rooted in that period of the whitening policies through immigration. But in contrast, though Brazil, as I highlighted, you know, Brazil has, you know, has the second largest Black or mixed population in the world outside of Nigeria and thus has long historical and ethnic ties, particularly to Angola and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, has never instituted visas, these humanitarian visas, to ease and, and um, streamline uh, arrivals. And so for Congolese, and so even though Congolese are a major refugee group um, and have been over the last uh, decade, which means that instead a sizable portion of Congolese arrived not via plane, but instead on stowaways on ships crossing the Atlantic, which I argue in the book eerily echoes and recalls the, the journeys of the Atlantic slave trade, which most Brazilians in some way can trace a lineage. But despite that, the, the ways that policies have been opened or visas have been offered for Syrians and now Ukrainians has not been extended to any African nationality.
2: Yeah, this is so helpful. And you know, even the way in which people arrived have been in the making for, you know, decades and centuries, if not more. Um, which I think was very powerful to situate, you know, what racialization means in this particular book and in this context. And also, you know, something that Maybe departed or was more nuanced in your ethnography was around waiting, especially waiting in relation to asylum, right? Which is something we often see in ethnographies of immigration, but in your book, we also see multiple scales in which waiting is racialized. So you take us from how waiting disciplines asylum seekers' bodies in everyday interactions with bureaucracies to deferrals of asylum decisions. So what does this attention to multiple scales of waiting tell us about asylum as a racial project?
3: I would say that when we think ethnographically about waiting in research on immigration or asylum, i say it's generally been bifurcated between what you sort of highlighted as there's waiting in bureaucratic offices and spaces, and there's waiting in terms of legal limbo, right? So what is waiting, what is the experience of waiting when you have no clear timeline uh, you don't know when a decision will be reached, when you'll get a, the status, when you'll have an interview, et cetera. So there's been waiting in terms of the, the physical experience of waiting in spaces in which you're trying to interact with or navigate the state. And an example of that, it's not about immigration, but um, Javier Rochero's book, Patients of the State, which is really foundational in this regard to think about how important to, to use ethnography to really highlight that these these spaces of waiting are not inconsequential, right? There's important political domination that happens when you're in these uncomfortable spaces waiting uh, in bureaucratic centers and offices of the state. But then there's, as I said, then there's the second line that it's about the legal limbo and the temporal dynamics. And I wanted to address both of those in the book for a range of reasons, both because those are crucial ways in which racialization or racial differentiation and the consequences of that play out. But also I'll take the opportunity to highlight that because they're mutually constituted, in other words, that waiting in one of those realms impacts and exacerbates how much people have to go back and forth to bureaucratic offices. So in the book, I highlight how, you know, not everyone has to wait the same amount or as frequently in these bureaucratic spaces, right? In um, these offices. It's people who, predominantly Black Africans, who are waiting years longer to have decisions in their cases, are waiting years longer, or, you know, much longer to, ha- to even have their interviews, right? And so what this means is that they have to go to these, you know, for instance, in my case, the, the refugee center or the federal police office, they have to go again and again and again to these spaces in ways that Syrians do not have to, because Black Africans and Congolese in particular have to continue to renew their documents, which are about to expire because they're, you know, six months or a year, or they have to go again to say, when will my interview finally be, finally happen, right? When can, when will it be scheduled? Can I please schedule it? And so that those two dynamics around, or lines of research that we usually see around waiting, what the legal process looks like and how that plays out, versus the question of waiting in particular spaces of the state are actually dynamically intertwined and iterative. And what happens with legal processes really shapes who is waiting and in what conditions and how frequently as they're navigating in embodied ways, um, trying to claim their rights before the state.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for you know, making these links very clear, uh, both in your answer and in the book. And, you know, something else that was very interesting to me was your approach to, you know, endings maybe of asylum. So you show us that asylum and inclusion aren't, necessarily the happy endings that they're often heralded to be. So can you tell us about the disillusionment that marks the aftermath of asylum, especially experienced by Syrian asylees who are, you know, as you mentioned, sort of produced as figures with particular alignments to whiteness, right? And how do their disillusionment speak to the limits of inclusion? Yeah,
3: so... I would say that Syrians, the Syrian refugees that I met and that I spoke with, a key thread was that question of disillusionment, right? And Syrians, what they would say, and as I highlight in the book, is that they were really shocked that Brazil would do so much work to make it easy for them to come to Brazil, you know, to offer them these visas, to streamline their asylum processes. Some folks would get, Syrians would get, uh, refugee status within just a couple of months. You know, they wouldn't even have an interview and they would be expedited through the whole process. But Syrians were really shocked upon arriving in Brazil that there was no system of support, right? That there was no in, infrastructure to provide language support or assistance in, in acclimating to what is a very different cultural, political landscape um, that is Brazil. That they just, what was really easy was the legal process, but nothing else was, right? And there was no housing support. And Syrians in particular really juxtaposed their experiences and what asylum looks like in Brazil with the experience of their their friends or family members in places like Europe or Scandinavia, right? And so they knew, they imagined, and they knew that there were other countries that were providing those systems of support, right, language assistance or forms of funding as people were learning the language until they could get jobs, in the case of Germany, or other types of social assistance, which Syrians did just not have access to, or in general, weren't being offered to refugees. So they were really struck by that that difference in a way that none of them imagined that that's what they were going to be fleeing or immigrating to. At the same time, they were grateful to Brazil, right, by providing a, a safe way of seeking safe haven, a safe way of leaving Syria that didn't involve crossing the Mediterranean, that didn't, incro- uh, it didn't in- involve sort of long treacherous journeys over land trying to get to Europe, right? The, the ability to obtain a visa um, from the government and fly to Brazil was a very different experience than, than many of the others that they knew or their family members or friends, and they also noted that they didn't experience racism and Islamophobia in the ways that they either had in their own past migratory experiences, right? So Syrian refugees could also be people who had lived in other countries prior to this, right? Depending on their own life circumstances. And so they noted that they, they weren't treated as foreigners, they, they weren't derided or denigrated as foreigners, I would say, in their everyday interactions as they went to supermarkets or restaurants. But that usually, the the question of Islamophobia or anti-Arab sentiment was not something that was shaping their daily lives. And so they were also really grateful for that. But what you need to restart a life and to have a dignified life is not only that, but also to have the ability to continue your education. So a lot of these folks are people who had been at university, and Brazil has made it incredibly difficult, not only for Brazilian citizens, but also for foreigners and refugees, to pursue university degrees, right? Because of the, the, the bureaucracy of the fact that their documents and their past studies are not recognized. It means the vast majority of refugees have been unable to continue their college studies in Brazil. Um, and so many were in the process of trying to get these professional degrees and have been unable to do so. And so it means that a common thing that Syrian refugees would do is instead work as street vendors, right? That they're Because of the familiarity with Arab food, Um, going back to what I was saying before about Arabness as sort of being part of the nation, people are very familiar with kibi or asfika or these foods. And so Syrian refugees are working often as informal vendors um, or food entrepreneurs, which is not what they necessarily want to be doing um, or would be doing if they were still in Syria. And so having this lack of an ability to imagine what their futures look like and to to plan and to say, oh, this is how I'm going to have formal housing, and this is my path to the job and career that I had or I was pursuing before I left Syria. The Syrian refugees didn't necessarily have that. And that's crucial to what safe haven really looks like, is being able to imagine a future. And Syrians have felt very, the Syrian refugees that I met have felt very stuck in place and unsure about what that future looks like and how to get back to the lives that they had imagined, but in the context of Brazil.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
2: Right. Yeah, I really appreciate how, you know, the ability to build a future isn't necessarily something that's considered when, you know, we're talking about relative privilege when it comes to asylum. But, yeah, this is a very, very important way to think about it. Um, Yeah, so far, you know, we've talked about the color of asylum, um from say asylum seekers perspectives right but something i appreciated in the book was how you draw our attention to the color of erasure of you know people who are running the process so those who make asylum decisions their ways of seeing asylum seekers even their bodily expressions during asylum interviews are often made invisible throughout the process what do these kinds of erasures show us about the white logics of asylum?
3: So I I would say in general, you're you're right that, right? That so far our conversation is really focused on the experiences of refugees. But the focus of the, the book was actually trying to offer a rare glimpse into these bureaucracies of the state that have been heavily guarded and that we very rarely have access to, let alone ethnographically, right? Very rarely are we able to see how it is the border patrol agents or immigration officers or asylum officers are doing their work, right? And what that looks like. And so this was a rare opportunity to turn the ethnographic gaze sort of up and look at the state. And so that's a, actually a crucial part of the book. Is of course it, thinking about how this processes experienced by those who are navigating it, but also the asylum officers who are the people making the decisions and how they go about doing that. One of the things that really shocked me that I was not expecting before, you know, when I first started doing this research almost 10 years ago, I had imagined that, you know, the the conflict in Syria hadn't started yet, right? That wasn't even on the radar, and so originally, I, the research I was thinking about was that this is a, a rare moment. The asylum process is a rare moment of contact between African refugees and Afro-Brazilian state officials, right? And sort of what happens in that space. And then I started doing fieldwork, and I realized that everyone was in the working for the state was white. And self-identified as such, with one exception, there was sort of one Black asylum officer or official while I was doing the research. And so I had to turn to really grapple with the whiteness of the state, right? And the ways that questions of race and class intersect in Brazil, that really explains this, right? So who are the Brazilians that speak three languages and have college degrees? They're going to be folks who are white and have their own histories of European immigration, some of which were quite recent. And so I had to really th- shift what I thought I was doing with the research, because this was not a space in which, you know, national citizens and um, sort of refugee newcomers, all understanding themselves as black were, were interfacing. No, instead it was, a, there was a huge discrepancy. Um, and so Turning then to the question of the whiteness of the state, I also wanted to look at what that work looked like. And when you when you have the I write it in the in in the book about the ways in which asylum officers invisibilize themselves, or erase themselves from the process, um, often case recommendations you know, you wouldn't even know who had made the recommendation in early years. There wasn't even a line for an asylum official to say that they had produced it, right? They would erase their words in interviews so you would only have the response. So they were completely effaced in the process. And one of the things that that accomplishes is when you produce knowledge from nowhere, it can be knowledge without bounds, right? You can make claims to... Epistemic authority—you can make claims to knowing things that really you can never know, because one asylum is incredibly subjective, right? And so there's nothing objective about that process of determining who qualifies and who doesn't. But also, there's no way—and certainly these folks weren't experts in all country conditions of, all, you know, the the dozens of different countries of origin from which refugees were coming. And so, effacing yourself provides the state and these officers, the ability to make decisions when in in the face of unresolvable uncertainty, but that it also produces this hierarchy between what is the white knowledge of the state and how it's making sense of the knowledge of the folks who are claiming asylum. Because as I show in the book, that's not what asylum seekers experience. Instead, they're Their knowledge is is absolutely constricted to what their bodies have experienced, and they're not allowed to make claims to general, unbounded, abstract knowledge. And so that discrepancy, I think I argue in the book, is a big way in which the state produces political domination, regardless of whether or not those folks ultimately receive refugee status. They're made to believe that there are things that they are not allowed to know and forms of knowledge that they have. These are people who are also often experts, right? Political activists who are way in ab- above sort of experts in the political histories and dynamics of their country and political parties and dictatorships and what have you and coups, way above and beyond the uh, asylum officer who's ultimately adjudicating, right? But they're not a provided or allowed space to speak on, um, the country conditions from which they've fled and said they have to speak on, well, well, was it hot as you fled? And and what did you eat on the airplane as you flew over? And um, did you cross a river as you were fleeing, right? And And that really shifts how people understand how, it impacts how people understand the state is seeing them, right? If it's not allowing them to be experts in the things that indeed they're experts on.
2: Right, so... You know, again, I think you bring such an important iterative lens um, that, um, yeah, lets us understand how knowledge is produced and co-produced during these processes, right? Um, And something I was very curious about was, like, what to do with the whiteness of the state, right? So uh, in the book, in my reading, you both tell us that the racism steering the asylum process is more systemic than individual, but you also show us how from caseworkers to receptionists, racism becomes an everyday experience enabled by their actions. So I'd love to hear about how you tread a balance between doing justice to representing the asylum workers uh, that you worked with while evading a portrayal of racism without racists? Um, so far, I, I mean, I'll say I'm glad,
3: I'm glad you feel like I thread, threaded that needle because that was sincerely one of the biggest struggles in writing the book. And I, and I imagine a struggle for lots of ethnographers who have spent immense amount of time with people and building relationships and friendships and trust, but also recognizing that those individuals who are doing their best really at the end of the day, this is not, this was not a space of folks who were jaded civil servants who were assigned to the area, right? These were asylum officers to NGO lawyers to, you know, most of the people working in this process at the time were people who sought it out, who were deeply invested in refugee issues and questions, who had prior worked as volunteers working with refugees and NGOs, right? So these were not, these were not people who were coming at it in a jaded, you know, the I don't trust anyone and I, you know, they are people who deeply cared. At the same time, racism is not a thing that exists at the individual level, you also see in the book plenty of ways in which as much as people, so how to say, as people were also very aware of the ways that racism was working through the process, but were often very disconnected or obscured the ways in which they were also a part of it. And by to give an example of that, people were very aware of the ways the federal police office, which um, Is the entity that gives the documents and files the claims and renews, you know, renews the identity documents. It's an an important space that asylum seekers and refugees have to navigate. People were often very aware of how anti-Black racism was impacting who had to go there again and again, who had shifting requirements on what documents they had to bring to get whatever status People were very aware of how it was happening in other places, but I think this is generally how racism works and why ethnography is so important is that we're so busy living our lives or carrying out the jobs or trying to work through this overwhelming docket in this case, right, of a really emaciated bureaucracy that didn't catch up with the increasing number of folks who were arriving and seeking asylum, Um that you, it doesn't really provide that space to sort of sit back and think about, well, what's shaping my actions, right? Are there patterns that I'm not catching? You're like, no, I, I need to work on this and then I need to work on this and I need to work on this. And it doesn't provide that sort of space. And I think that's what you can do ethnographically is really zoom out And look at what are the patterns that are actually occurring um, in treatment, in how people are talking about different refugees from different countries and regions. Um, But it is really a major tension to know that racism is structural, it's systemic, it's not something that exists at the individual level. But this is also, bureaucracies are peopled, right? And there are individuals who work in them. Part of that will these people, of course, work in the system and thus are bound by the logics in which they're working. Um, and so as much as you know, folks would often grapple with the pros and cons of working inside the system and what it provided for or de- what it didn't provide for, or go out of their ways to help refugees you know, there was an asylum officer I write uh, I wrote about elsewhere who was really invested in cases for Molly, right? That that was something that really struck her. Or uh, lawyers who were really invested in, in Congolese or Francophone African refugee cases. But there are still individuals that then have their own idiosyncratic populations that for a range of different reasons, they come to care a lot about and be invested in, in ways that aren't going to necessarily have ripple effects for the process in its whole, which is what refugees are experiencing. They're not experiencing one person. They're experiencing a length of a process.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of you know, like zooming out and thinking about how we're being shaped by, you know, the context we're working in. I'd also love to hear more about your positionality. Um, so you worked on asylum cases and participated in these institutional logics while providing assistance to asylum seekers. So how did you grapple with the possible complicity that comes with this kind of work on the one hand, and your political commitments on the other? So with
3: thinking about my own positionality, it's, of course, thinking intersectionally, it's multidimensional. And so as you know, a college-educated edu- college uh, white cis woman from the United States who speaks three languages, English, Spanish, and Portuguese, there was different ways in which that positionality provided for affinity and proximity to some folks and difference and distance from others in ways that were certainly shifting. Because the, the book I would say is, you know, what we can call a relational ethnography, which is rather than studying a particular group, right, sort of becoming embedded and focusing on the experiences of Congolese refugees, for instance, instead, what I was focusing on is that space of relation of encounter in which refugees and asylum officers and federal police, et cetera, what is that process that all of these different groups and actors and individuals are interfacing in through, right? And so because of that, then the positionality of a researcher and ethnographer can have a range of ramifications because you're dealing with a very heterogeneous social space that is also inherently hierarchical in this case. And so while my positionality actually provided for a lot of Social proximity with the folks in power, right? We we were all white. They had also generally lived abroad, studied abroad, um, traveled abroad. Sometimes, you know, the, these are generally we're talking about elite Brazilians, and so there was a lot that we had in common that provided for proximity um, that made the you know that shapes the ethnography. At the same time, the my own experiences living and traveling in different places and my language comfort with Spanish and, you know, native, native, you know, language fluency in English. Also, it, it, it had a huge role to play in how refugees could experience their encounters at the refugee center, um, just to be able to hear instructions in a language that you're, that they themselves were fluent in. Right. So the way, so when, you know, folks would come from countries like Nigeria in which there's a history of British colonialism such that these folks are fluent in English or the same case with Ghana. And to be able to not have language be an implicit barrier as people are trying to navigate this thing that's inherently opaque, right? Legal processes around immigration are often incredibly complicated and obtuse. And so to not have the, that encounter mediated by language difficulties in a space that did not have like translators or interpreters, right? That, that, that really shaped things as well. There was only one other person at the refugee center during my many years, um, that I was going back and forth to the center. There was only one other person who had, or two other people, um, who had learned Spanish or knew Spanish. And so that as well with folks, who are coming within Latin America, I would often have these interactions where they were like, oh, you speak Spanish, right? Like, I'm not going to have to struggle to be understood by you. And I'm not going to gonna have to struggle to understand you. And so those, those seemingly minute details of what these interactions look like really did matter to folks. But the at the end of the day, I was absolutely seen as someone with forms of power, right? Because I had access to the system. I helped them fill out their asylum forms. I also conducted interviews, produced case recommendations. Um, And so that really shaped as well, while I could have a great deal of proximity to the folks making these decisions, I was very aware uh, that, that that was something that I was not going to Obtain, And then also especially that I should not try to have that level of proximity with refugees, right? That there was an an inherent power differential that is unescapable, that is shaped by broader geopolitics of empire and the role of the United States and actually producing plenty of the conflicts that these folks are fleeing from, either in the contemporary cute way or historically, like thinking about the role of the US in the coup um, and the assassination of Lumumba, which shaped the trajectory of what the Democratic Republic um, the political trajectory of the Democratic Republic of the Congo that is not irrelevant for the fact that Congolese are such a, a large refugee population in Brazil and then um, more broadly. And in any case, so there, knowing that those forms of power and hierarchy it very much shaped um, who and how, with whom and how I interacted with different folks and what those interactions looked like, the it also meant that I. When I did interviews for the book and for the ethnography, I really focused on folks who I had never worked on their claims, right? So people I did not know through the refugee center, or I worked with people who had already had decisions, right? And so that was definitely part of it. But then thinking about the political commitments more broadly, I mean, one of the things, to be frank, was that I wouldn't write a case recommendation that was a rejection, for one, Um, I was very unabashed in the feedback or guidance or orientations that I gave for asylum seekers and refugees and sort of what, and allowing them then, giving as much information as I possibly could, and then allowing them to make whatever they thought was the best decision for them in terms of navigating their, their new life or transitory time in Brazil. I think the political commitment more broadly, though, for me, I hope, is with the conclusion of the book which is that going back to our conversation before about Syrian refugees and also just what life looks like for refugees in Brazil that asylum is not a panacea it is not it is not a resolution um, it is not the solution that I think we often imagine that it is right and but what asylum is is a moral safety valve for a deeply violent, vitriolic draconian immigration system globally and if we start to question what asylum is and what it accomplishes I think it also really pushes us to think more seriously about open borders as maybe a better political objective um, mm-hmm. for what would racial and refugee justice really look like and i don't i I don't think that asylum is the path towards those aims and I think that's I end with that in the conclusion of the book and I hope that that's one of the key takeaways for folks who read or engage it.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for being so open about um, the process and have you positioned yourself and, you know, providing this beautiful, you know, conclusion of sorts, both to the book, but also to our conversation. And before we end, I'm curious about what's next for you? What are you researching, reading or teaching next?
3: Yeah, so I have started working on the new book project, um, which feels like a bit of a whirlwind. But the new projects that I've been working on and that I've been thinking through and currently calling White in Another America. And so in a lot of ways, this takes some of the threads that we've been talking about and go through the book of really grappling with questions of whiteness and racial power and the social value that whiteness really has in Latin America and in, in the cases that I know better in the Southern Cone of Latin America, so Argentina, Southern Brazil... Chile and Uruguay sort of being, when we say Southern Cone, those are the places that I'm sort of referring to. Um, but usually Latin America has been understood as a place where, well, one, it's been understood as a place defined by racial and ethnic mixture um, demographically and ideologically, right? Um, the idea that, you know, everyone is mestizo in the case of Mexico or that everyone is mixed. Um, but the, the dynamics in the Southern Cone of Latin America are actually quite different and that the vast majority of folks in those areas self-identify as white. So Brazil actually has, so Southern Brazil is, I think, I believe over 80% white. There's more people who self-identify as white in Brazil than any other country outside the United States or Europe in the world. And so while these are places where we usually think about blackness or ethno-racial mixture or indigeneity, which I think is crucial, important work to highlight um, those narratives and what they erase and experiences of marginalization and, and what are the forms of, you know and the racial stratification and inequality that exists in the region part and parcel of understanding inequality is also understanding power and privilege and crucial to that is thinking about whiteness and so the book's really turning to focus on whiteness but through immigration past and present so going back to what i was saying prior about those whitening policies in in these countries which variably brought you know immigrants from italy spain germany as often you know, immigrant settlers to sort of colonize and shift the the dynamics of what were often the southern parts of each of those countries, right? Um, and involved massive indigenous displacement. And in any case, the so the second book is looking at what are the cultural afterlives of that immigration, right? From 100 years ago, these are places that have ethnic festivals and You know, Blumenau, for instance, is one of the places I'm now studying, which is called the German Soul of Brazil, which has the largest Oktoberfest outside of Germany. Right. But so what is it? What is the work that that claim to ethnic Europeanness is doing to racially differentiate, to produce social hierarchies? Right. Both within Brazil and in relationship to the rest of Latin America. What what is its social and cultural import? Why are these why are the ideas of immigrant patrimony? so important right? What is the work that that's doing? And then what is happening with that as Latin America now re-emerges for the first time as you know Latin Americas now over the last decade saw the highest relative increase in international migration in the world. So these places are receiving immigrants and refugees in ways that they haven't since the last century, but those folks are now not coming from Europe. They're coming from Haiti. They're coming from Syria. They're coming from Venezuela. They're coming from Cuba. They're not necessarily understood as white and they're not coming from Europe. And so how do these, these countries and communities that are so invested in that they are the descendant of immigrants, what happens when they're confronted with new, new arrivals of immigrants and refugees that don't look like their ancestors um, so that's some of what I'm trying to grapple with in this new project and I sort of spent time, um, in Brazil over the, over the, over the summer and over winter, sort of traveling around Southern Brazil and, um, to these spaces. And
2: yeah, I'm, that's what I, yeah, that's what I've been working on and thinking through. That is so exciting. Hopefully when that book is out, we'll have you back. Um, that would be a pleasure. It sounds so fascinating. Yeah. Thank you very much, Katie, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's It's been truly a joy. This is your host, Adiza Arican. This discussion of The Color of Asylum, The Racial Politics of Safe Heaven in Brazil, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.